And we are back on Money Talk uh, with uh, some of our guests, uh, the reliable, doughty, and insightful Enzio Von File, Wealth Investment Strategist. Good morning, Enzio. Good morning to you, Andrew. Hey, great to hear from you. Also, we have Pete Sweeney, Asia Editor with Thompson Reuters, Reuters Breaking Views. Good morning, Pete. Good morning, sir. Hey, so, uh, gentlemen, lots of uh, China uh, data coming out. And uh, just for, let's just get a quick hit. What do you guys make of uh, the, the numbers coming out of China the last couple of days? Enzio? Well, I think it's a mini Japan in the making. I mean, I know that the numbers have looked pretty good. We can all read pretty well. But there's been a structural implosion of consumption. Consumption normally accounts for three-quarters of GDP growth, but that is actually now only about one-third of GDP growth in China. So that engine has kind of got knocked out. The exports are still looking pretty shonky because of world growth. So you're really left with government consumption. Well, that means more fiscal deficits. So um, I think it's, it's, it's not going to be in Japan, obviously, but I think there will be signs of more money and less inflation coming through in China because of job insecurity. People are just worried about about keeping the jobs with less capital investment in China and with those export markets being threatened. So, so when you say like Japan, I mean, there's like the Japan of, uh, there's booming Japan of the 80s, there's zombie co corporate Japan that, that followed after that for decades. But now you're saying loose, you're saying loose monetary policy, but not really inflation because of an anemic market. Is that, is yeah, that the Japan yeah, you're talking well, about? Because of anemic demand, because people are very, people are saving their pennies because they are worried about their job security. Also, for instance, with the Huko system, whereby the um, Japanese, excuse me, the, the, the Chinese rural laborers can't really just migrate to um, places where there are jobs that easily because of the registration system, the household registration system, um, I think it's it's just going to make – China's quite realistic. I mean, it's not going to become a Japan because the Chinese are more practical and more sort of more sort of down to earth about these things. But I think there are signs that one has to at least be careful. Yeah. Peter, what do you figure? Well, I mean, the consumption point is what everybody's looking at. And um, I mean, uh, one thing that gave a lot of comfort was the 10% rise in retail sales, um, which really startled people. Um, and that combined with the signs of um, the, the housing, falling housing prices might be bouncing back, um, I think are big reassurances because, I mean, housing, real estate is a quarter of the of economic output, or at least it was before this crash. Um, it's 70% of household financial wealth, so there's a wealth effect. So if housing was going to keep on sliding, I mean, it's by no means out of the woods. Um, investment is still down. Um, you know, construction is still down. It is not driving growth, but a, a continued slide in prices would just be disastrous for everything else. So that flattened out. <clears throat> um Consumption is back, but it's important to note that retail data does include some government consumption, um, so it's muddy. Um, uh -huh. We had some reports from like Tencent saying that, like you know, they track um, you know spending through their their WeChat app, so they have pretty good visibility on that. They said a lot of the spending was concentrated on like kind of like cheaper items, low tickets. Um, and then at the top end, it's healthy. So Porsche had like a record-setting first quarter. <laughs> Excuse me, but there's plenty of mud still in there. And the point about really putting, uh, building confidence in the ordinary consumer back is whatever he's looking at. I mean, it's worth noting that everybody is looking at this massive stack of household deposits that got accumulated during the pandemic. Um, Chinese savers added another 10 trillion yen to the deposits in the first quarter. That is not 
revenge spending. That is hoarding. So, mm. <laughs> okay, that, that's when Enzio talks about uh, saving their pennies. It's a lot of pennies that add up. So, looking looking at these consumption numbers, uh, I mean, I did not know that that included government numbers, which is a little no, bit a little bit odd. But I mean, looking at it, you know, when people talk about consumption in the U.S., the last couple of weeks, they're saying uh, they're saying that you know you're seeing consumption, but on services, not goods. So it's generating jobs in the United States. It's not helping exports from China. So when we look at, you know, to get a little more granular, you've identified that there's some government spending included. But what about the split between retail and services in Chinese uh, consumer spending? Is that is that something people have visibility on? Well, the services are looking much better, but how could they not? Um, after the lockdowns, I mean, you're talking about people unable to go to restaurants, unable to go to movie theaters. There are these vast sectors of kind of the low-end economy they were just completely frozen um so we expect any of, of all the sectors you know keeping in mind that manufacturing never got hit that hard you know even at the worst of the pandemic the factories kept running um they kept building stuff the, the, the manufacturing problem now is weak external demand um as well as internal but um services we expected to come back and that's good i mean they're they're big employers um you know is it going to it's not going to drive a big boost in headline growth but in terms of the quality of ordinary people's lives um, if you work in a restaurant, you know, that's that's pretty good news. Um, but yes, as you say, it's not going to drive imports and imports are still contracting, mind you. Mm. Um, we had a, a miserable uh, first quarter, more or less. The rate of contraction has slowed. But um, if you're a foreign company that's hoping for some boom in Chinese demand, you're disappointed. However, I would point out the silver lining. Um, so far, uh, you know, if you're a country that's worried about China exporting inflation, you still are not really worrying about that. Uh, CPI in China is down to like 0.7%. It's been falling. Mm -hmm. um, so any concern that there's going to be some sort of big boom out of China that's going to complicate central bankers' jobs elsewhere um, does not seem to be loading up anytime soon. Yeah, Enzio? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that even though the services spending is up a little bit, it's still growing more slowly apparently than before the COVID-19 panic back in 2019, surprise, surprise. So... I think that the um, it's it's just an overall what they what we economists call precautionary saving what Peter was alluding to, and I think that that's going to continue that that because that's of the structural issue of just job insecurity, and I mean job insecurity, uh, education. I don't know. Are either one of you looking at uh, kind of education consumption? If that if that's having an impact on inflation in China, are people still spending more and more on tutors? I mean that that kind of got cut out by the government, but is education a sector that you're considering the inflationary pressures there? No, I mean, I think most people are worried. I mean, that would be an entirely domestic effect um, yes. because it's a service. Uh, and as you noted, there's been this very odd kind of crackdown there. Um, a lot of kind of attempts to forcibly control what consumers are spending on. So less money spent on housing and education, more money spent on whatever the government wants to. <laughs> government I'm not sure what the positive yeah, things are, but yeah. the whole common prosperity thing has been kind of trying to reallocate stuff. You can be sympathetic to some of it. Like, I mean, you know, Chinese parents were kind of in this this race to the bottom in terms of spending more and more to compete to get their kids into top schools. Mm. Um, it was messing with real estate prices and neighborhoods with good schools. The whole thing had kind of gotten a little bit psychologically messy, so the government tried to break that, but it was terrible. It put basically put that industry out of business. Yeah. But um, the main thing is, like, when you don't have strong real estate construction, you don't have strong demand for the commodities that tend to make people worried. Um, so with that still off the table, um, I think the overseas, I mean, unless you're a commodity exporter, you can, you can relax a little bit. So, you know, you 
raised earlier this idea about uh, China not export. Okay, so inflation's low. China's not going to be exporting inflation. Uh, what is going to hit inflation outside of China is uh, American government spending. We've got a big fight on right now about the debt ceiling in America. Um, Enzio, what's your, what's your take on this? I mean, don't we go through this every year? They have a big fight about whether or not they're going to raise the debt ceiling. And every then... year, every day, actually. <laughs> and they, 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 the, the U.S. government hasn't defaulted on its debt because that would be the, the end of civilization as we know it. Um, but, I mean, what's your take on all this? Well, I call it apple cider. And what I mean by that is that ciders obviously can be quite sour, if you will. And it's really, it's apple corporations' creative destruction that is going, that is, needs to be mentioned in the context of the debt ceiling hiatus. Apple actually is offering higher interest rates on deposits with Apple Corp than any bank is. And so a lot of depositors are going from banks to Apple and putting their money with them. That, of course, is leading to a liquidity crunch within the banks. And that's going to get worse the more that Congress keeps bickering about, you guessed it, the debt ceiling. Now, the problem with the debt ceiling is basically that um, McCarthy wants the Democrats to negotiate and Schumer wants McCarthy to back off. I'll pause her to let that sink in. Mm -hmm. So what that means is that you're going to have a standoff whereby both sides, the Democrats, the Republicans, surprise, surprise, are now actually already calling for the, a form of a government default. That's, of course, then going to mean that the little guy at the little bank, which has no more debt sort of restrictions anymore because of Mr. Trump, thank you, thank you very much, 2019, mm. um, the little guy is going to flee the small banks, so you're going to find low short-term interest rates, and so this is the crunch point, already now at 5.25% versus 30-year rates at 3.83%. That's going to worsen, and that's going to be just an almighty mess um, in the markets. I suspect it will strengthen the dollar because of the higher interest rates, but it's going to be very messy. Mm, okay. As, especially, then I'll shut up, in quarters two and three, because in quarter two in April is when the U.S. tax returns start getting filed. So guess what? People need cash to pay their U.S. taxes with. Hmm, okay, and just to bring uh, listeners up to speed in case they missed it, uh, in I think it was yesterday's news that Apple is now allowing customers to yes. use their Apple Pay wallet to move money into a fund, like no fees, no minimums, super easy, 4% when they are getting not even close to that. Uh, I think it's being done through Goldman Sachs out of Utah. But um, Peter, uh, I mean... What's your take on this? Are we are we headed for trouble? Well, I mean, I'm going to just concur with basically everything Enzo said about that. So, I mean, I, I, I moved here for a reason, yeah. right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sick of hearing about Apple this Wallet, yeah, nuttiness. But the Apple Wallet thing is super interesting by itself. It just reminds me of what happened with Uabao, um, you know, which was what Alibaba did. Uh, they had this great little money management. Um, or money fund that uh, was paying out so well that it was going to suck all the deposits out of the entire Chinese banking system. And the central bank had, I mean, it, I think at one point they were paying double digits, you know, and so, and it was instant liquidity and you could see it on your app and you could use pay, pay for stuff. And it was so convenient that the government had to stop and enforceably prevent Alibaba from going and negotiate. I think it was mostly c certificates of deposit they were trading or something. And they had to forcibly restrain Alibaba from offering such such attractive rates because it was becoming a risk. So that's that was my fault there. So maybe there's there's lessons from China that American regulators haven't picked up on yet, unless they're listening to our show, which they probably are. Yeah, we'll see. It's uh, it's it's just literally struck them, me at the yeah. time. Yeah, guys, we got about a minute and a half. I do want to turn my eye to Japan. Um, I know Peter, you, you've been looking at Japanese insurers, and they're they're doing something a little. Well, noteworthy. Yeah. 
Yeah, so uh, nobody cares about Japanese insurers. Boring. But um, the main the main thing that people are looking care care a great deal about is Japanese money that's parked in overseas equities and bonds. Um, so there's this whole nightmare scenario where, you know, as we know, the Bank of Japan has so far held off on adjusting its yield curve control, its ultra low monetary rates, even though the U.S. and everybody else has hiked, and this has really warped. <clears throat> the way that Japanese corporates look at their investment portfolios. For a long time, they just easily would would put these positions into treasuries or overseas corporate bonds or equities. They could borrow cheaply in yen and earn better returns offshore. <coughs> now, with the yen plunging um, and volatility increasing, hedging costs have gone up. So they've started repatriating money. Um, so this one insurer, Fukoku, just announced that they're going to close down the entirety of their hedged overseas bond holdings. Um, it's a small position, but overall, the worry is that this was the beginning of a tidal wave of Japanese corporates pulling their money out of out of overseas. And, you know, Japanese is a major overseas creditor. It's a huge investor in, like, French debt. Um, they're big dollar bond issuers. So the disappearance of, of Japanese money and the Japanese bid is making everybody quite nervous. Um <clears throat> So far, uh, nothing dramatic, too dramatic has happened because it's been going slowly. So all eyes are kind of on the Bank of Japan. If Ueda has said he's not going to move anytime soon, uh, he has, hasn't been that specific, but he's not going to move to change his rate policy right now because the economy is not out of the woods. Okay, but if he does, if he has to tweak it, um, a lot of these Japanese corporates might have to repatriate money, especially if they made aggressive bets offshores that they collateralized with Japanese bonds. Um, so there is this whole kind of lurking threat, um, and that's why people are looking at Japanese insurers to see what they do because they're worried that behind them is a whole slew of other banks and hedge funds and you know, companies like Toyota or whatever that are just going to kind of repatriate their money Ouch. and global markets are going to get hammered again. Wow. So we're finishing with the red lights on Japanese uh, Japanese holdings and bonds around the world if they're going to start pulling money back to the home country. Man, that's a, that's a strong finish from Pete Sweeney, Asia editor, Thompson Reuters, Reuters Breaking Views, and very lively today, Enzio Von File, wealth investment strategist. Thank you to both of you.